Uh, we're in the middle of our series, Transformed, and the music was supposed to play, so you don't have to worry about that. That was okay. That's actually part of the video, so you don't have to worry. We'll replay it maybe at the end. If my sermon only goes four minutes, we'll just do that to fill it. To fill it. We're talking about being transformed by Easter and what an exciting thing that is, what that does for you, and kind of the main topics we've touched on so far is we're talking about mental struggles that we, uh, that we have that are so common. They said any given time, about 50% of the population is struggling with something when we talked about anxiety. Um, that's the number one, and we also talked about depression. So that's 4 to 7% of the population in the United States is going to be struggling with what they call clinical depression, which is just beyond like um, having some depressive thoughts, but it debilitating to a sense for about a couple-week period. So the, the, what we kind of come down to is a couple conclusions is um, depression is a very complex problem with a complex solution. It's not super easy as far as just saying, okay, it's a physical thing, we'll take care of it. But instead, and it's not just necessarily a spiritual thing, read the Bible more and that's going to take care of it. But as body, mind, and spirit, we've got to put these things together to a complex solution. And sometimes, and the hardest part, as we said, is with depression compared to anxiety, is that with depression, you could know what you're supposed to be doing. You can know you're supposed to eat better and sleep better and do all these, hang out with your friends and go to church. You can know all that. You just don't feel like doing it. And anxiety is a little bit different in that um, sometimes you're motivated, like, how do I get rid of this, my anxious thoughts? Like, what can I do? And you try and control that to some degree. And so you see it show itself in many different ways. I'm not an expert again. I'm not a doctor. But you see it show itself in different ways, as you can see how debilitating it could get with, like, OCD behaviors, trying to control your environment and things like this because you're worried about things. Anxiety, I, I see, is a little bit different in the sense that here is what God says and here is how I feel. And so the, the best way to get over that, I think, is, is a thinking process, right? You, you're saying, okay, my emotion says one thing, that there's gossip, and maybe there is gossip, maybe there isn't. So it involves a thanksgiving, and then we also said thinking. And thinking simply means, what does God really say in this situation? Assessing is, should I be afraid right now? Should I be nervous about this? How do I put these two things together? So this is one that sounds probably very similar as we move on to number three, which is baggage. Now, I'll just make one disclaimer, is that I'm from Wisconsin, and I have no idea how to say baggage without some kind of accent, but it's Everyone says emotional baggage, so I can't say like emotional suitcase, and you guys, you'd be too obvious. So I can't, I don't know how to do it. I'm not going to suddenly be from a different state in the next 15 minutes, so you just got to deal with it. So that's how, it could be worse, right? It could be from Boston or something like that. So just like, you can, you can deal with it. So as we talk about baggage, baggage is a, a really broad topic, so if we would just go by definition, we'd say someone has some baggage. And what we're saying is there's something from their past, there's some past experience that is now affecting the way that they deal with people now. That's kind of the short version, right? There's something in your past. And let's just, real, I'll give you real simple things with my dog, okay? I've had three dogs in my lifetime, two really bad ones and one pretty decent one. So this affects how I look at dogs. So my first dog was Ringer. We adopted him for a total of a month. I begged and begged and begged. I can't say beg either. So, so I, I pleaded with my parents earnestly, and they finally got this dog, Ringer. The first thing Ringer did, it was come in and pee on my toy box. That wasn't even the worst thing Ringer did. So this is like, this was not a great relationship. And so I was looking through a set of encyclopedias. How many of you had encyclopedias when you grew up? Yes, okay. So I had a set of encyclopedias. No kid has encyclopedias now, but there was this, the whole world was hidden like, uh, through the editing of Britannica. So I went to under puppies, naturally, because you'd look under puppies, and I can tell you exactly what that picture looks like. It was these, they had all these different breeds of puppies and dogs, and I thought, this is amazing. It was actually under dogs. And one was a dachshund. 
and if you've ever seen a puppy, like a wiener dog, is the cutest dog you could ever find on the whole planet. So I, I dreamed of having this dog, so I saved up all my paper route money, and finally my parents, through incessant pleading, said you can get this dachshund. Except there wasn't all the books that you had, or if they did have books, I wasn't very good at reading them. And do you know the top five breeds that are most aggressive? One is a dachshund. So if you've ever seen a dachshund, it got Napoleon disease. So what am I saying? My dog was lousy. It took years to fully potty train him. It took years until he wasn't aggressive. He only liked Amy. And it took years like for this whole process. And finally, when I went to college, we gave him up for adoption. His name was Garth, and he went to the Brooks family, which I think is super funny. But So this, this was my dog story. And then suddenly I get a dog. I read all the books, read all the magazines. You know, this is how I'm going to train this dog. And I'm still amazed that he comes when I call him. I'm still amazed that he's not like going to the bathroom in the house. I'm still amazed like he can roll over and do tricks and like does these things. I'm, I, I'm amazed. Why? Because I had negative baggage that came that said, I cannot believe a dog actually can be good. As most of you know, I'm a dog liker. And it's been years and years and years of relentless pleading for my own family to say, we want to get a dog. And finally, I relented thinking, I'm going to have three lousy dogs in my life. That's what's going to happen. So that's just a dog. A lot of you, though, I'm guessing there's, there's an impact and the relationships you've had in the past. So if you had a lousy boss who was very uh, micromanaging, how did that affect you when you went to your next job? If you had, uh, so that's one thing. How does it affect you if you had a, a landlord who was just weird like we did? We called them the crazies. That's the nicest thing we could say about them. They were crazy. And I could tell you story after story after story about the house that I lived in. They were very rich. There was actually a murder in the house, but we didn't live in that house. We lived above their garage. They didn't commit the murder that I know of. So they, at least that one they didn't commit. So they, this is the crazy. But it affects every single um, relationship I have now. So when you talk about me being kind of particular about expectations and making sure like this is all laid out, that's a big deal to me because we had expectations kind of verbally and it just went south with this family. So that affects all that. That's very simple. What happens, though, when the things of your past are way bigger? Like, what happens if you were abused? How does that affect every relationship that you have? How does it affect you if your parents were alcoholic? And psychologists, for just on that one, for example, can look at your life, and they could say, here's the pattern of, and I could give you the five, but, like, one is you lie about simple things, right? This is what, if your parents were alcoholic, you find yourself doing it. You don't even know why. There's, like, a whole list of five things that you'd be like, wait a second. Because what? It affects your life. What happens if your parents never thought you were any good? What happens if you have body image and someone says that they think you're beautiful and you just don't believe it? Someone says you're a great employee, you just never thought you're enough. I'll give you one more example from my own life. Not a big deep one. Um, so I grew up, I was not a good athlete at all. Like this, I was not good. <laughs> like I was, like we had 16 kids and I was like not even on the basketball team as a kid. So I wasn't very good. I tried, I wasn't very good at baseball. I couldn't do any of these sports. I wasn't so I thought, you know what, I really want to be an athlete. That's what I want to do. So I'd work and work and work and work and work and practice all the time, obsessively practice all these sports like tennis and basketball and football. And, and we'd throw against the wall. I'd set up tires. I'd do all this stuff because I wanted to be an athlete. That was what I wanted to do. I was a junior in high school and a senior in high school. And I never thought of myself as an athlete ever. But at this point, and this is not, this is not a big school, so don't think anything of it. But I'm the starting quarterback and I played on the basketball team, and I was on the tennis team. And we were going to play outdoor volleyball once with our friends, and they said, hey, do you want to play? And I'm like, no, nah, I don't play that much. And they're like, yeah, but you're an athlete. 
It's the first time I'm like 18 years old where I said, huh, maybe I am an athlete, right? And then later on, and, and I'll just give you two more instances, and this is in no way, keep in mind, I'm just above average. But to, there was another time we were at a Brewer game, and they're doing the speed pitch, and a scout came to talk to me. I'm like, why are you talking to me? You should talk to my brother. Like, this never entered my head, and I didn't have enough philosophy. You don't think, like, I was throwing heat, and it was some magical movie moment. It was probably 62 miles an hour. But, but anyway, but all of this affects. Now, how much does the story you're telling yourself affect you when you go to meet people? And I think it happens in two different ways. I think it really does. The one is we don't think we're adequate enough. And that we're never enough, right? We, when we go to a new relationship, we think, why aren't I more handsome? Or why don't I have more money? Or why don't, um, why don't I have that personality? I wish I had a better job. I wish I had a better family life. I wish I had a different house. Like, you, you, it's never quite enough. So there's one sense of an inadequacy that affects every, that's baggage, that's going to affect every relationship you have. And some of that is going to be someone just says they really appreciate your company, you're not going to believe it. Someone says they think you're beautiful, you're not going to believe it. Someone says, you know, I'm not worried about your money, you're not going to believe it. Okay? And some of that's past experience and somebody who has drastically affected your life. The other one is when you do find that you're good at things, when you do find that you feel like you have enough money, or you're really good at your job, or you are handsome, or you are fit, or you make the right choices in your life, that also negatively affects how you step in to see people. Because in your mind, you're better. So one is you're inadequate, and one is you're better. So I'll give you one example, super simple. We're going to get an intern, a vicar. I think we said that. We're pretty excited about that. My previous vicar, we would mess with all the time. He was a good guy, awesome guy. One time we gave him a two-piece puzzle and it makes these two wooden pieces, if you set them on the right angle, they make a triangle, or a pyramid, I should say. This is not a hard puzzle. Like, I gave it to my six-year-old, and it took, like, four seconds. You know, they're, like, messing with it. They're like, oh. But we played it up to him. His name was Phil. So we're like, Phil, this puzzle is so hard. Like, I think only a genius could figure this out. Somehow, they make a pyramid out of these. I don't even know how it's possible. Like, we just talked this all up. All my kids had already figured it out at this point. They're, like, seven years old. And he takes it on. It takes him 15 minutes. And finally, he turns it and he goes, oh, I got it. And my kids are just dying laughing at Bill. And he felt so terrible. He was like, this is not funny. This is not funny. But what did I just instill in my kids? That they're smarter than the vicar. So this was not a good thing to do, right? What does this all kind of come around? Where does this kind of come around? Because all this baggage comes when we come to meet other people. So I'll give you a couple examples of what kind of goes through your mind when you say someone's from like Aurora. Uh, what happens if you say, I have an apartment in Aurora? What happens if someone says, my kids were taken away from me? What happens if they say they lost their job? What happens if someone says they're a doctor? What happens if says, someone says they travel the world? You know, what happens if they say they invented something? What happens if they said they started a startup and now they have this? Like all of this information affects you. And the same thing happens when you meet people. So as a pastor, most people, apparently all pastors are older. Because when I meet people, they go, huh, you're a pastor? I'm like, I've been a pastor for 16 years. And they're like, what kind of youth pastor? But they don't say that anymore. Now I'm just, I'm just stretching it a little bit. But they always think pastors are older, and then they have some other assumption that they're surprised I'm a pastor. And I'm not sure exactly why. I don't know what that means. The same thing happens when you meet someone and you say your own things, your own job, and your own family situation, the own place where you live, and you talk about your own stuff, people are making assumptions about you. And what's really interesting is that as people approach Jesus, they did the same thing. 
And so I got two instances talking about baggage that people had. This is, uh, some of these are familiar stories. This is John 1. This is the calling of the disciples. So the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip goes and finds Nathanael, and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets. So he's, he's super excited because this has like been a word search forever. They're trying to find the Messiah for like centuries and thousands of years. And fun, suddenly, imagine in your lifetime, they said, we got him. Here's the guy. So they tell this to Nathaniel, and they go, yeah, yeah. Here's the deal. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you can imagine the excitement. Like, what would be Nathaniel's next word? Like, you have found the Messiah promised to Adam and Eve and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way through the line, and the King David, the root of Jesse is here. He says, Nazareth? Like, are you serious? Can anything good come from there? He said, you come and see. What's the problem? Nathaniel has this baggage that goes with him, and he's about to meet, keep this in mind, the Savior of the universe, and he's worried about where he's from. He's like, ah, Nazareth, though? Are you sure? Like, uh, I'm not a big fan of that. This isn't the first time, though. Another instance, Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? So now, remember, there's two ways that you can meet someone. There's three ways, and we're going to get to the third one. But the, the first one is you feel inadequate. The second one is that you feel like you're superior. What is her situation? A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And you've probably heard this from preacher guys all the time, but the Samaritans, what was their biggest issue? The Jewish people wouldn't even walk through their area. Like, they wouldn't even go through it because they were half-breeds. That's how they looked at them. Because uh, when they left and they got sent to Babylon, remember, like, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they left the Babylon. There's leftover people, and God has one simple rule. Like, do not marry, intermarry with the, the pagan people. And they said, got it. They leave. They kind of run out of ladies and men, and so they start intermarrying, and we have the Samaritans. And then they come back, the Jewish people, after God holds them. It's 70 years. They come all the way back, and they get there, and they're like, you guys did what? And they actually set up their own temple. Like, this is a big deal. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus, who's obviously Jewish, said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I think when we talk about baggage, and this is, let's just talk it from an approach of approaching God, and so we're going to do it one at a time. I think some people in this room, the struggle is to think, why would God actually care about me? And if you really think back in your life, I think all of us have some things that we've struggled with and some things that we've done and some things that we've done or said that we don't want to tell any human being. And there's things that we don't want to tell God. We don't even want to hear what God would have to say because we think there is no way if God really knew who I was, that he would care. And do, we, do you know why we know that? Because there isn't a single human relationship that you have, if you told them everything about you, they would still embrace you. You could say your mom, I mean, you could say your spouse, you could say your dad, you could say whatever, but I don't think if you were totally honest with all the feelings you've had, the things you've done, the things you've said, that there's a single human relationship that would say, yes, I would like you the way I like you now. Now we bring that to God, and this poor Samaritan woman says, like, why would you even talk to me? 
why? And, and some of that is the baggage that we bring. It's not only things we've done, but it's the way that someone has so melded our mind that we're afraid to even meet someone face to face. And maybe you have an instance where you were abused in the past. Uh, maybe someone's forgotten about you. Maybe people talk down to you. Maybe you've been raped. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe, like, all this past stuff comes forward. You say, there's no reason the holy God should say anything to me. Number two, God reminds us of something very simple. When we talk about our own burdens and the weight that we have, God says, I'm the one who picks them up. I take your pain and your suffering. And God says, when I look at you, I just don't see those things. God says, I don't see a broken reed. Remember, a broken reed I'm not going to break. God says, I see what your situation is. I see all the things that you've done. And I love you in spite of who you are and all your past. He says, I want to have a relationship with you. I'll take that burden on you. Give me your burdens. You don't have to carry these things any longer because the heavier these burdens are, the more they affect you, right? If I would walk around with that weight for 15 minutes, it's going to affect me. It's going to hurt me. It's going to determine how I interact with other people. The other way, there's a story of Zacchaeus, which you know, and Zacchaeus is just utterly amazed when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to eat at your house. And he's a tax collector. No one talked to the tax collectors. He's a he in cahoots with the, the Roman government and all this other stuff. But here he is, and Jesus says, I'm going to eat at your house. And he goes to his house, and Zacchaeus is overjoyed. But do you know how the other people felt? It said they grumbled among each other because he was going to eat at the house of a sinner. Both of these approaches, when you look at the gospel, a lot of people feel like the gospel is not really for them. And sometimes we look at the gospel and we think God's advice, it's just good advice for us. Like, how do I have these rules? And how can I do it so that God is going to be proud of me? In fact, we approach God thinking, God, why wouldn't you love me? And both are just as dangerous when you feel inadequate before God because of baggage or you feel like you're too good. So God approaches you and now you have this collision course, what happens when you meet the true God. Which one is true? When you're broken, God says, I want to pick you up and I'll carry your burden and those sins as far as the east are from the west. That is true. And when you say, God, I stand before you and God immediately and said, God, you should love me for who I am. God says, I will humble you in a second. And so either way, God says, I want you to take these burdens and these past things and I want you to put them at the foot of the cross. I want you to set them here and forget about them. Second Corinthians, though, talks about how this really matters with people. So from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. If you are a Christian, God is saying, as he's going to get to in a second, if you are a changed human being, you will no longer look at people as the world looks at people. And the way the world looks at people are, are you in value to me? Are you something for me? And when we see people with a bunch of baggage, we say we don't want to go near that person. When you hear someone that I said in the story that their kids were taken away, we're like, I'm not going to hang out with them. When we hear that they don't have the money that we want, we say, no, thank you. When they hear the person who comes and they want to talk and talk and talk, you're like, you know what? I just don't have time for that. You're emotionally draining to me. I'm going to spend my time by myself with my friends who are very good and all things are going great and they're not going to weigh me down. He says, regard, from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view Though we once regarded Christ in this way, so we do so no longer because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. 
This old self is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us through himself in Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting sins, people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. What does this all get to? What does this all get to? God says you're a brand new creation. And if you're wondering about your self-worth, God says you're, you're valuable to me. You're worth something to me. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of baggage you come coming to a different church. It doesn't matter what kind of stuff you bring before him. God says you're valuable to me. And you're a brand new creation. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out in the world and recognize that it's really about sin and grace. I want you to interact with people, not from what you can get from that person, but I want you to interact to recognize, I want you to view people not that you're not adequate enough, because that's not true. Not that you're better than other people, because that's not true. I want you to view people from the shadow of the cross. That for no reason do, do we have to come before God ever, and yet God says, I want you to be here. For no reason should we ever be able to represent it, but God says, I've taken your sins away, and I want you to do something special for me. I want you to represent me to the world. And the only way that we can do that is see people with a different set of lenses. You see people that are broken and hurting. You see people that have their own baggage. And instead of pushing them off on the side, God says, I want you to love them too. There's a phrase that says sometimes the hardest people to love are A, ourselves. C.S. Lewis has got a quote about that. He says, if God says we're forgiven and we determine we're not, somehow we've determined that we're higher than God. So it's time we forgive ourselves and say, God, you say that I'm worth something, and I'm valuable, and I'm filled up because of your grace. I believe it. And when we know that everything comes from Christ, it also puts away any of our set of headiness that says this is who we are. Comes back all the way around full circle. Is there anything good that comes from having baggage? I think there's three things. God's word makes more sense. When you're weighed down with something, when you're hurting with something, when you've got something from your past that you're trying to deal with, and you read about the Bible, and you read about things about people struggling with those very same things in Job, and you read about Elijah who wants to commit suicide, he's like, not quite, he's like, God, take my life. You read about Job, that says, let me just die. We read about all these people that are saying, like, I'd rather be gone. It makes a lot more sense when you've got a weight on your own shoulders. But I think Jesus makes a lot more sense. When you've got a weight on your shoulders and you say, God, I want you to take this from me. The thing that people were most impressed about Jesus is not only would he associate with people, but he spoke with authority. And faith is simply believing what God says is true. That's what faith is. And Jesus comes into our life and says, your sins are terrible. There's nothing you can do to get close to me. There, it is impossible. But then Jesus also says, but I'm the one who took it on you. So Jesus makes more sense. The burdens that we have that we're so weighed down that we try and carry ourselves, Jesus has said, I've taken those away. And finally, I think Christian community makes sense. Sometimes the hardest person to love is yourself, but there's another phrase that says, sometimes the hardest people to love are the ones that need it the most. I guarantee every single one of you has people in your life that you're thinking, I don't quite think it's worth the effort to pour into their life. They've made their own bed. They've made their own mistakes. They've done their own stuff. God is saying, I want you, through the view of the cross, 
is say, you're my ambassador. And if you're not going to go talk to that person about sin and grace and what really matters, who's going to? If you're not going to be a person who would listen at times, who's going to? If you're not the one who's going to understand because of your own baggage what it's like to carry it in this world, if you're not going to be the person who's going to help carry in that, isn't it say that in Galatians? Like, let's, let's hold each other's burdens. None of that makes sense if you have no baggage in your life. But when you do and you see that Christ is taken away, suddenly this all makes sense. Amen.